Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast, we check out the fourth Democratic presidential primary debate. Who, we, we learned who gave a master class in shade at the debate. Joining me will be the Chronicle's Deputy Opinion Editor, Kai Milner, and from Washington, D.C., the Chronicle's D.C. correspondent, Tal Copen. We tell you what you need to know from the debate. Next on It's All Political. Welcome uh, to It's All Political. Kai Milner, Deputy Opinion Editor, is here in San Francisco. Say hello to everybody. Hi, everybody. And from Washington, the Chronicle's Washington correspondent, Tal Copen. Tal, how's it going out there, bud? Oh, just another day in paradise. <laughs> <laughs> well, we watched three hours of Democratic uh, debating last night, so our, some members of our audience didn't have to. Um, Tal, what did we learn from last night's debate? That it's hard to be a candidate polling in single digits right now would probably be <laughs> my my wager. I mean, fundamentally, it doesn't feel like last night is going to be remembered as a game changing debate or, you know, fundamentally alter the dynamics uh, that we've seen to this point. You know, it seemed like every, again, candidate who's in the single digits, which is every candidate that's not. Sanders, Warren, and Biden at this point came with some sort of game plan to try to, you know, change their luck and and shift their fate. But I think the result of that was that they sort of all kind of deployed their tactics. And in the end, you know, I don't think any any one of them sort of just completely broke out of the fray. Uh, so it, 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 you know, it was an incrementally moving forward on some policy issues kind of debate. We the one change is that Warren seems to be the front runner that gets the pile on, not Biden. Uh, but again, it doesn't seem to be a pole mover of a debate. Yes. Uh, and of course, we will see in the next few days, the next week or so, how that how that bears out. I was still struck, and I think we talked about this last time, about how Warren does not answer the question on her health care plan. She was uh, very demonstrably evasive on this, where she says... She is asked, will this raise taxes on the middle class? She prefers to say, no, it, uh, their costs will go down overall. Uh, the truth is, uh, it would raise uh, taxes on the middle class. Her, her version, or it's not even her version, it's Bernie Sanders' version of Medicare for All. Bernie Sanders is very open about saying that. Is that, is that going to hurt her? I mean, you know, Mayor Pete kind of went at her and said, "You didn't, you didn't answer the question. It was yes or no oh, question." Oh, you know, it was. It's really interesting you bring that up, Joe, because I was thinking while I was watching her and watching everybody attack her on the stage, that she kind of reacted to that the same way she reacts to the question about her health care plan and about whether it raises taxes, which is that she just stays on message, full steam ahead, ignores the attacks, ignores, you know, ignores the frustration that people have that she's not answering the question, and she just keeps going forward with it. Um, this is how she's gotten to where she's gotten at this point in life, and this is clearly the tactic she thinks that's going to get her to the nomination. We this, will see. 
Is that an effective strategy when you're dealing with someone? You know, we we are evaluating all these candidates is how you would look on stage uh, with President Trump. President Trump, of course, a uh, bare knuckles, asymmetrical uh, debater. <laughs> I, don't, just, I don't even know if that's can truly capture him. Is that strategy uh, going to be effective against him? I don't know what will be effective against him. And I guess I would say that people have tried lots of different strategies and nothing has worked so far. So, you know, this is the one that Warren's going to try. Um, and then I, I guess I would also say that as a woman, I think it's a little bit more, there are lots of other dynamics at play when you're up against someone like Trump. So she's clearly going to try something different than Hillary Clinton tried, which she's just going to be like, I'm going to ignore what's happening beside me. I'm going to keep talking to the public. I'm going to keep telling them as clearly as I can what I what my plan is and how it's going to affect them, um, in my it, at least in my opinion of it. And I'm just going to ignore the, the noise. Speaking of uh, confrontations with Warren and one that was, I think, very telling for for um, for Biden was later in the debate um, when uh, she was asked, uh, you know, he said nobody's done anything big. And uh, Warren says, well, you know, hey, I created this Consumer Protection Bureau. Uh, and Biden says, well, hey, I helped get you the votes for that. And it was, you know, waving his hands at her. I, I talked to um, uh, uh, online uh, someone from the um, Center for American Women in Politics, Kelly Dittmer. She's a professor there, expert in gender studies. She, she studies all this stuff. She says uh, that Vice President, played, uh, Vice President Biden played that wrong in two ways that will leave a particularly bad impression on women. First, he implied that he was responsible for the CFPB, which was Warren's brainchild. Women too often confront men taking credit for their ideas or men claiming credit for their achievements. Second, by waving his hand at her and raising his voice while she kept a calm demeanor, the contrast and emotion was stark. And while men may be, may be sensitive to, quote, nagging women, that's her quotes, uh, women are sensitive to aggressive men. This is particularly salient, salient in interpersonal settings where candidates are sharing physical space. I want to get uh, your, your read on that for both of you. What did, what did you guys take away from that moment? Um, I, I, as a woman who has worked in male-dominated environments all of my life, I definitely recognized what was going on on that stage. And I thought Warren actually handled it really well. Uh, she was like, thank you to President Obama, which, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was really a masterclass in shade. And she didn't seem mean or angry when she said it. So I was like, wow, that, that's, that's a response. Yeah, I mean, you could see her sort of look away from him as he angrily just yelled at her and sort of take a minute to compose herself. And I agree that that was extremely relatable. Uh, and, you know, definitely <laughs> the the notion of, of women constantly having men take credit for their work or, you know, get away with blowing up in a way that women would never be able to get away with being that aggressive. Certainly something I think resonates with a lot of women at the same time. I think whether it's been, you know, his his comments that seem condescending towards African-Americans, you know, the the inappropriate ways that he has sort of been touchy feely that might have made women uncomfortable time and again we've sort of said oh this is this is really a moment that could hurt him with this constituency and we haven't actually seen that play out it seems like voters 
may be willing to look past or either either don't care or are willing to look past those particular uh, issues for some greater good. So, you know, while I do agree that was a moment, I'm not sure it was a game changing moment for a lot of folks. So you don't think it adds to that narrative that you listed about Biden's, you know, he's 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 getting getting a list now of of moments. Narrative. Sure. You know, fundamentally changes his trajectory. Not so sure. You know, there's there's an assumption that at some point Biden's support is going to crater and that support is going to go elsewhere. And, you know, that may not be an incorrect assumption. His support is largely driven off of uh, you could consider it soft and it's it's driven off of a, a sort of comfort level with him. He's the biggest known entity in the race. He's seen as, you know, having proven over time that he can get this type of thing done. He's the closest you could ever have to, you know, someone who's basically done the job before short of an incumbent president. That's all still true. There's this notion that if one of the other candidates could simply prove themselves to voters, that voters would kind of flock to that candidate. But, you know, as I as I talked with one of the strategists in my story uh, ahead of the debate with um, about whether Kamala Harris can turn it around, you know, waiting for a front runner to crater uh, Kevin Madden, a veteran of Romney's and Bush's campaign said, like, waiting for a candidate crater is hope as a strategy. It's not it's not going to bring them down as a candidate. So, you know, until a candidate can sort of effectively deploy some of these criticisms against Biden in a way that resonates with voters and convinces them to switch, you know, I don't know that that cratering is just magically going to happen. Um, one of those people who may be hoping for that magic uh, was uh, what well, two people came, I think, jumped out last night to me were uh, Amy Klobuchar and, uh, and Mayor Pete. Um, both of them were uh, particularly feisty. Uh, last night. They were aggressive, both of them. Yeah. yeah. Very much on attack. Yeah. Now, did that, uh, what did you think that does for for their chances? I mean, I thought it was, I thought Amy Amy Klobuchar definitely got a lot more speaking time than she has in past debates, and that can only be good for her. Um, I She seized it, too. She did. I don't know how much it will move the needle for her in terms of the polls. Um, And that's just because at this point, there are just too many candidates on stage still. Um, As for Mayor Pete, I thought he had a a terrific exchange with Tulsi Gabbard on Syria. Um, I thought, you know, they were both veterans. They had opposing views on how to handle foreign policy there. They really kind of talked it out. Um, I didn't think he, he did well with his attack on Beto, though. I thought that made him look smug. I thought it make him made him look bad. I thought it make, made him look insensitive to the victims of gun violence. And, you know, the whole knock on Mayor Pete is that he's a little bit of a teacher's pet, and it made him look like that again. <laughs> yeah, and, I, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Definitely, like I said, every candidate who's not doing that well kind of came out with a strategy, and you could see that strategy. And... You know, Buttigieg's strategy was clearly to go on attack. He went on attack with Warren. He went on attack with Beto uh, O'Rourke. He went on attack, you know, with the with the Gabbard moment, which I agree was, you know, a really effective. And he was sort of the only one on that stage who could go toe to toe with her on the issue of I've also served in uniform, uh, you know, and and. There's a lot of things you could criticize with 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 Gabbard's answer on Syria that some of which got left on the table. But that aside, you know, it probably worked for him. I think out of anyone last night, he has the most potential to get maybe a bump of 
one to three percent in the polls coming out of this debate, which is not nothing. I don't know if it, any other candidates will really move. I do think it's really interesting that he seems to be the only candidate so far who has gone on attack that hasn't had it sort of backfire in a way. You know, Kamala Harris landed one blow on Biden and it worked, but she anytime she continued, backfired. Castro, it backfired. And you can sort of draw your own conclusions about why perhaps it may have worked for Pete Buttigieg where it didn't work for other candidates. Do you think that this now puts uh, Klobuchar and Buttigieg as uh, backups to Biden? If you want, you know, and I, it's, I hesitate calling anybody a moderate because all these folks are left of center. Uh, but do you think that they're they some voters may see them as if Biden is uh, <laughs> defying the Kevin Madden strategy of uh, hope is hope is not a strategy. Um, do, if voters are looking for, well, you know, Biden, I don't know, maybe he's 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 too old or you know he's had his time or whatever. Would they would they be alternatives? Do you see them as viable alternatives now to Biden? I wouldn't quite frame it that way. The way I would frame it is Elizabeth Warren is clearly transcendent in this race or, you know, ascendant in this race. Uh, she seems to be completely occupying the progressive lane uh, and doing a very effective job on it to the detriment of of Bernie Sanders. So if you're a campaign and you're looking at how am I going to win this thing, you're going to say, OK, where can I get votes? And if you're looking at where you can get votes, you're looking at Biden supporters at this point, and you're looking at moderates because trying to out progressive Warren, unless you're Julian Castro, who is who is trying to, you know, go through that lane, it's probably not going to work. And so I think what you're seeing is that Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Harris, which we didn't see last night, but she's going to have to, you know, reckon with this. They are all now competing for that lane of supplanting Biden as slightly to, you know, the right of Elizabeth Warren. And and that's what you're seeing is is whether or not voters are going to buy it, we'll see. But I think they all realize that that's really their only viable path at this point. What about uh, Andrew Yang? He got uh, more uh, airtime than he has, almost double than he than he usually gets here, probably 11 or so minutes. Um and did he make a, a better case for himself? Uh, or Kai, I know you're a huge, uh, you're in the member of the Yang gang, aren't you? Uh, uh, he's, <laughs> I appreciate having him in this race. Yes. Uh, I appreciate having his perspective in this race. And I think, you know, as Silicon Valley has become ascendant in terms of their contributions, um, their, polit their political opinions. Um, and I do want to note that big tech was attacked by literally everyone on that stage last night, except yes. Andrew Yang. Um, I think it's worth having a voice like that uh, as a candidate and in the campaign. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that when uh, Andrew Yang kind of when after Elizabeth Warren a little bit, she sort of treated him like not really as a competitor, but more like a slightly hostile voter on the trail. <laughs> you know, she was kind of like, That's well, description. Andrew yes. Yang, you know, yes. you like UBI. Let me tell you about Social Security, yes. um, which is the most similar thing we have to it. So uh, I guess I would say I'm not sure that um, America is necessarily ready for his big idea yet, but I do think his points about automation and how it affects the economy is is definitely something that people are concerned about. And these yeah. attacks, go ahead, Tal. Oh, I was just going to say that's, that's the closest I think Warren has come on the trail yet to 
coming across as the like age old professorial knock. Like she is a professor. She spent a long career being a professor. She knows the data. I tweeted about this, but last night she actually conjugated the verb correctly and referred to data as a plural, which is a, you know, telltale sign that she understands. Oh, <laughs> that, that that made nerd tweet of the night, by the way. I loved yeah, it. That was yeah. great. That was, but, but that was but, I mean, you know, she she lives in the data and I think she was shocked to see Andrew Yang kind of come back at her with his observations, you know, and I and I think a little bit of annoyance probably showed in that moment, you know, that that Andrew Yang sort of talks talks this language of understanding what's happening with America. And she's sort of like, excuse me, but I've spent, you know, decades studying why Americans go bankrupt academically, not, you know, your sort of your perspective on what is actually happening in America. And I think I think I don't know that it blew up on her or anything like that, but I think that's that's a little bit of what Kai was describing that moment to be like. Um. Let's talk about some of the attacks as you referenced on on big tech last night. Is that a who does who's that? Is that a winning strategy? Um, I thought uh, going back to uh, the master class on shade. I thought when uh, uh, Kamala Harris was uh, talking about well, uh, trying to go after Warren for why don't you uh, call for Trump uh, to uh, uh, be kicked off of Twitter? Um, she uh, Warren said, you know. There's one thing uh, about uh, kicking someone off Twitter, and then there's something about taking money from tech, big tech folks and tech leaders and such, which Harris does. And, and Warren men, does. And, and Warren does, too. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> many, many of them do. Um, so uh, that was one way of doing it. But there's also other attacks on you know, breaking up the technology companies. How does Who does that resonate with? And does it resonate? Or are most Americans, are, are, do, they, do they see big tech as the enemy here? Bashing big tech is a very safe proposition right now, which is why you see both parties doing it. It's rare that you see but now they're doing it on slightly different grounds. And conservatives have this sort of conservative bias, uh, you know, conspiracy that they won't let go of. Democrats, it's much more about competition. But, you know, these are these are not terribly popular institutions at the moment. People still go on Facebook and Twitter, but, you know, they're they're viewed very skeptically. And so it's a pretty safe bet. Now, I would separate out. uh Harris's decision to the one wedge she tried to drive between her and Warren was this call to suspend Trump's account, which, you know, her campaign clearly planned because her advisors were on Twitter afterwards, continually defending that as an important position. Uh, Even even the day after this morning, Sam's still tweeting about it. It's I it's a it's it's not. The issue I would have guessed, let's put it that way, that she would have tried to drive a contrast <laughs> yeah. with the other candidates. Well struck. But, but you know, the other conversations about, you know, the role of antitrust breaking up big tech, about greater, you know, restrictions on or or calls for them to do more to protect our democracy in terms of spreading outright lies and, and you know, conspiracies and that type of thing. I think that's pretty safe ground for any candidate at the moment. Um, I, I think it's a, an interesting reflection of how far we have come since the last election when nobody would have made these attacks on tech. On tech. And since that time, you know, we've had con- continual uh, income inequality, which is, I think, part of where 
some of the more progressive candidates are going after tech. And then we've also had this series of just horror stories about all the misinformation, the bad things that technology does to your kids with things like YouTube. So um, the public is definitely primed and and ready to be like, okay, these things that we're using, they're not good for us. And they're probably not good for us um, socially, emotionally, politically, or economically. Um, so, but yeah, it, it's interesting because the Democrats were so pro-tech even four years ago, and you're just not seeing any of that now. Right. Uh, the requirements to to qualify for the next debate will be higher than this one. Uh, we, we will most likely not see 12 people here. Um, given their performances tonight or last night, whenever, Tuesday night, whenever this, uh, wherever we are, um, and that fact, who is in some trouble now? Tom Steyer's got to go. <laughs> I don't know. He may be able to buy his way back on the stage. But I'm not he, positive, but I think he's qualified. I think he's one of the seven... Who's already, who's already there? Who's already there? Yeah, um, I thought he was short a poll, but but anyways, he uh, he's he's close. He may he may make it just because you know he spent twenty million in TV ads. He's he spent like what five or six million in uh, online ads. You can you can uh, get support. You can't get you know. We'll see. But anyways, who else? Anyone else? Uh, I think Castro and Booker are right on the bubble. I'm I'm gonna try to look up um, our list though, so we know for sure who we're talking about. Yeah. Will this be the last we've seen of O'Rourke and Gabbard? I think Gabbard is going to have a hard time making it. Uh, she she just barely snuck in on this one. Um, and Beto has, uh, I don't know, uh, that that's going to be, he's a, a definitely on the bubble too. I think it's going to be a challenge for him. Um, and uh, so we may be down into the single digits uh, then, which will make it a, a much more focused debate. So last night I watched the debate from Rossmore which is a 10,000-person retirement community here in the Bay Area. These are mostly well-to-do, uh, largely white seniors. And I watched it with the Rossmore uh, Democratic Club, which you may be surprised to know is the largest Democratic club in the country. 1,075 members, yes. Very feisty. I've spoken there before. It's you got, I, I prepare probably harder for to speak to that group than anyone because mm. they're, they're intense, man. They'll go right at you. Um, so uh, this crew does not have a favorite, but they were definitely watching uh, the candidates for signs that they feel, you know, like physical signs that they feel. Uh, they were watch one one gentleman said, I, "I was watching Joe Biden because he in the last in the first debate he forgot a lot of names and and he didn't didn't say, didn't look too strong." He goes, "I I have that same thing. I, you know, when you're older, you forget names. You don't. You just kind of gloss over it." Um, he said he felt that Biden was fine last night or that he goes, but he was sort of the same rambling person he was in his 60s that he was as he was at the age of 78. Uh, Biden, 78. I'm sorry, Biden, 76. Bernie, uh, 78. And uh, Warren, 70. Um, they also said that, you know, the, the things we we're talking about, the things that they feel and they say, you know, uh, th their resilience isn't as good as it was uh, when they were younger. So one woman said, I'm almost 80, like like Bernie or, or Biden would be. And she says, "I, you know, if I have a couple of meetings during the day, I, you know, one in the afternoon, I'm, I'm kind of like tired. 
uh, by then. So it was interesting to hear what they had to say. Uh, they all thought that uh, uh, Bernie looked strong. You couldn't tell the difference. Like I had the heart attack two weeks ago and he was just cranky as ever. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, my God. And, and you were asking these folks to do not only a physically taxing thing because they're on the road constantly, uh, but an emotionally, a mentally taxing thing. And I think that's going to be a question that a lot of Americans have, uh, you know, and, and, and it was, they were asked that last night and they all kind of, you know, what, what are you supposed to say? No, I feel terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. I don't, no, I don't know if I can do this. Maybe I should just quit right now. But, uh, but so I, I think, but the question is, is out there with Americans. And I think polls say that there, you know, about 40% of people have some concerns about candidates who are in their seventies. I'll tell you, I mean, Two things. One, I spend a lot of time with septuagenarians and octogenarians because I'm a Capitol Hill reporter in Washington, D.C. And there are, <laughs> there are plenty of them roaming these hallways. And I'll tell you from from that casual observation, 70 and 80 can look very different depending on who you're talking about. And there's some, exactly. you know, there's some folks up here who are in that age bracket and you would never believe it. And then there's somewhere you might believe it. And so, you know, I think voters kind of get that sense, too. I'm, I have definitely heard from people who say, I don't want to support a candidate over 70, but I would if there were no better option. Uh, and, you know, Trump kind of takes that off the table. The other thing, you know, I, I was chatting with a former colleague uh, who also tracks this stuff last night and and we both agreed the most important thing that happened during the debate last night had nothing to do with the debate and was the news that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is going to endorse Bernie Sanders and Elon Omar uh, already did yesterday evening. And so, you know, that's pretty significant when you have, I believe, the youngest woman in Congress coming out and endorsing him and potentially campaigning for him. We'll see how that plays out you know, that's some winded as sails at a moment he really needs it. So, you know, and and for a debate that didn't actually move the needle all that much, that's probably the biggest thing that happened last night. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, uh, until we do this again next month, so we watch uh, three hours of debate so our listeners don't have to. Kai, thank you very much for being here in San Francisco. Thank you for having me, Joe. Tal, thank you be for being here from Washington, D.C., Always a pleasure. It's all political. <laughs> Way to get the plug in at the end. <laughs> I'd like to thank you all for listening. This, you know, you got tw- in 25 minutes, you learned all you had to know from a debate that lasted three hours. And for that, I'd like to thank Kai Milner for being here in San Francisco. I'd like to thank Tal Copen from join- for joining us from Washington, D.C. And I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, for producing this. And I'd like to thank the great one, Karen Creighton for producing this as well. And whether you're delivering a masterclass in shade or on the business end of one, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.